Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. I'm Brendan Connolly, a third-year student at Loyola Chicago's Stritch School of Medicine. Today, we have another episode exploring the art of medicine. Dr. Elena Frasso is a professor in the Department of Slavic Languages and Literature at Princeton University. She is the author of the newly released Medical Story Worlds, Health, Illness, and Bodies in Russian and European Literature at the Turn of the 20th Century. Her research and publications address the rhetorical, stylistic, and structural intersections of literature and science with a specific focus on medicine. She holds an MA in the History of Science and a PhD in Comparative Literature from Harvard University, in addition to a PhD in Slavic Languages and Literatures from the University of Milan. Dr. Frato, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Of course. Um, so as I was saying earlier, this is a nice change of pace from some of our more kind of bread and butter episodes, um, where we're usually talking to clinicians who primarily treat patients or teach medicine to younger generations like myself. Um, but your work exists more on the artistic side, studying how medicine is portrayed in literature. Um, so that's, I think, something interesting and unique for this podcast, which uh, we really enjoy. Um, so to get started, could you just tell us a little more about your background? So yes, uh, in high school, I, I was very good in physics. However, I've always been fascinated by stories. So I was constantly trying to figure out what makes good stories so gripping, so powerful, how they're constructed, how the authors would manage the reader's expectations. So I liked to be surprised. I also enjoyed putting myself in the shoes of characters who were very different from me and everyone I knew. I enjoyed learning about cultures that were remote from my own and at the same time, exploring those existential questions that are universal and really cut across cultural differences. So I majored in literature and went back to the sciences later from a humanities perspective. Right, very nice. When uh, did you notice any moment that really sparked these academic interests or is it just something you always kind of clued into, like you said? Hmm. Uh, so my mother is a retired OR nurse. Oh. She worked in cardiac surgery. My father instead was a lithographer. So, you know, from a tender age, I was exposed to very distinct, very different ways to understand and represent the human body. However, it was only when I moved to the US for graduate school and experienced a healthcare system that is radically different from the one I was used to in Europe, uh, familiar with in Europe, that I really stumbled upon the interpretive nature of medicine. Mm. And I really felt the urge to chart that territory with, with my toolbox of a literary scholar who specializes in theories of narrative. Right, right, very interesting. Um, so what is your current field of study in your own words? Mm, I would say that I'm interested in the overlaps between storytelling devices, so how stories are built and constructed, and uh, the health and environmental humanities. I look at how the human body becomes a stage for meaning making, how it is like canvas on which the world, society, medicine, treatment leave inscriptions and how the body in turn provides metaphors for understanding what surrounds us. 
I guess this is something I always like to ask. We actually did another literature and medicine podcast with a, a doctor at Georgetown a, a, um, earlier this year. And one of my favorite questions is just like, why, why is the exploration of links between literature and medicine important or something that you enjoy studying and that you think should be studied? Well, if you think about it, the field of medicine, broadly intended, generates a great variety of stories. Um, and of course, case reports, journal articles, public health campaigns, patient blogs, educational websites, those are the most obvious ones, but they are just the tip of the iceberg. We can detect an inherent narrative structure in the way medical knowledge is formulated and transmitted in medical practice as a set of protocols and procedures, in the reasons for which research is funded and furthered, and in the goals that medical specialists and public health officials set for their societies. We can argue that um, patients tell their stories, you know, the chief complaint to physicians or nurses in hopes to having them retold by those specialists in better informed iterations that are likely to seem more plausible to other medical professionals, you know, diagnosis, case reports, but even clinical charts. When we can look at um, differential diagnosis uh, as the result of the competing plots that different specialists build to order one and the same set of symptoms and data, and patients, patients too aggregate text as they move from you know, hospital room to the next, from registration to the physician's office or an ER cot, from the ER to the operating room, from a room in the ward to the ICU, they leave inscriptions that take desperate forms. And that includes you know, notes about chief complaint that the staff at the registration desk enter into a template as the patient is talking right. or the boxes they check in those self-assessment pain scale forms that they fill out in the waiting area or that the nurse types into the computer on wheels at the patient's bedside, but also you know, clinical charts, nursing assessments, anthrop anthropometric measurements, mm -hmm. data reported from lab tests, insurance billing codes, or indexical images yielded by x-rays, MRIs, and CT scans. However, what interests me here more broadly is that patients, doctors, caregivers, insurance companies, pharmaceutical groups, legislators, religious leaders, they all claim authorship and authority over matters of illness and healing. Therefore, in all these scenarios that I just outlined, we can trace those same categories that we employ to examine the production and transmission of literary text, you know, authorship, perspective, agency, time horizon. Right. I mean, that's a, a topic that interests me for sure. I think having uh, in third year of medical school, you sort of go from mostly book learning um, the previous two years or primarily sort of a preclinical two years of study into the hospital. And it becomes more about gathering these patient stories and sort of inserting myself into that narrative somewhere, whether that be from interpreting all the data that you mentioned, like lab tests, the box they check on um, their pain scale, their chief complaint, my actual uh, conversation with the patient where I can elicit their history and why they came into the clinic today. So I think 
you know, this is just a topic that sort of interested me too. And how does that story come into being and then come to be passed from one person to the, to the next to the point that medical care can be delivered to this patient too and something actually, or like you said, more broadly, policy can be changed um, or uh, legislation can be passed or a ho hospital's set of procedures can be changed too. So I think that's, um, you know, it's a very interesting topic that is relevant. And I always just like to ask the question, why is it important? And then agree with why people say it's important. <laughs> Do you see, I guess, some overlap then? You kind of talked about the concept of like authorship and publication. Do you see some overlap with the literary world and how stories are created within, uh, you know, whether it's novels or short stories or poems or um other other texts how those are created and sort of the patient's perspective and in, in creating their story and passing it on oh yes for sure so uh when we talk about agency you know we talk about time horizon for example that's a great topic especially you know when we think about cancer patients or the so-called previvors you know, those people who test positive for genetic testing that yeah. put them at um, higher risk to develop scary um, fat, fatal diseases. Um, this is an era of serialized narratives. If we think about TV series, for example. So there's this operation of managing the time horizon of the viewers or the readers, if it's a story and installment. And at each episode, we, you know, the reader or the viewer updates this plot and tries to to make sense of it. And the author on the other end is managing the time horizon, the expectations. Oncologists are trained to do just the same uh, with their patients. So they focus on the present and blur the future. So they focus, you know, there's a diagnosis and there are lots of very mundane uh, everyday um, practices around it. You know, you have to schedule um, treatment or appointment and they make the patient focus on the present, but they blur the prognosis. Right. So they use metaphors uh, for that. They talk about, you know, climbing a mountain in small increments. So you focus on the here and now, yeah. you know, and, and you don't look uh, at this blurred top. Or they talk about uh, a bump in the road every time something mm. you know goes wrong. So you can imagine this road that stretches into... The sunset or into this um, in indefinite place. And, but you look at the bump here and now and you overcome that bump and forget about, I mean, don't look at what comes next. So there are structural, I would say structural parallels between um, you know, the production, transmission and reception of literary texts and you know, everyday medical protocols and procedures. Right. Getting into kind of your, um, I guess, more specific field of study, what is it about Soviet and Russian literature in particular that you find to be, um, I guess, fertile ground for exploring these topics? Well, there's a wealth of literary texts that were produced in Russia at the turn of the 20th century. That's my, my uh, epoch, you know, right. late 19th, early 20th century. And those were written in response to those rapid, structural changes that were occurring in the field of medicine and in the very definition of health and illness of the normal pathological distinction. So this makes that specific era 
uh, and that geographic area, particularly generative, particularly fecund for investigating this mutual influence of literature and medicine, whereby medicine provides themes mm -hmm. for literary authors and literature in turn supplies imagery, metaphors, tropes for understanding disease and formulating scientific theories. But this is true for all the sciences, not just for medicine. So for example, when the structure of the atom was understood, scientists employed the solar system model to explain it. Um, when non-conventional non-Euclidean geometries were formulated in the 19th century, mathematicians were resorting to all sorts of imagery to explain them, you know, convex, the convex mirror, uh, colored spectacles, a marble, a saddle shape universe, because uh, they lacked the language to explain concepts that were so new. So they were drawing on this shared pool of reference uh, that, you know, uh, brought everything, everybody together that everyone could understand. So there's no doubt that health and healthcare are global phenomena, and we know this very well now uh, in what is hopefully the tail end of the current COVID-19 pandemic. The medical humanities, however, have been somewhat slow in acknowledging the planetary scale of its traditional questions and concerns. Yeah. So the field is still overwhelmingly Anglophone in scope oh. and would benefit immensely from you know, different cultural perspectives. So as a Slavist and a comparatist, I introduce texts that belong to my field of expertise. And I hope that other non-Anglophone traditions will soon be brought into this conversation as well. So it's um, in some ways, just going off that last point, it's kind of a way to diversify the current rhetoric or sort of like Anglo normative sphere in which medicine exists. Is that is that characterizing it correctly? Yeah, to add voices mm -hmm. to these interactions of, of yeah, um, medicine, literature and the arts, to add a, pl a plurality of voices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are some of the major sources or texts or like maybe required readings that you have students um, read in, in classes that you teach or people you work with uh, at Princeton? Yes, I teach every year, unless I'm on leave, like every year I teach this large lecture course called Literature and Medicine. You said you are 2013? Uh, I was 2013, yeah. yeah. So maybe you, you heard about it, but uh, because that intercepted number of pre-meds right now I have 80 pre-meds uh, oh, pre-health nice. okay. students in my class so we explore texts across genres uh centuries and the world you know texts from physician authors Anton Chekhov William Carlos Williams who was a big fan of Chekhov uh, Mikhail Bulgakov Nawal Sadawi from Egypt Oliver Sacks, of course, and Paul Kalanithi, a very recent one yeah then we look at Leo Tolstoy and we discuss mortality. We look at Nikolai Gogol and Lu Shun on mental health. Uh, we turn to sci-fi when we mm. discuss the body in parts or you know, the body-mind dichotomy. And one favorite is Never Let Me Go by Ishiguro. Yeah. And recently, the past couple of years, we've been reading a lot on epidemics, of course. So novels from you know, the obvious ones like Camus, The Plague to a relatively recent one from China titled Dream of Ding Village on an AIDS epidemic in the 90s that, that was a result of um, uh, 
blood blood scandal, blood uh, selling scandal. We also look at graphic novels. Um, you know, Epileptic is one. It's excellent. Blue Pills is another one because I think that visual literacy is paramount to medical competence in general. And if you think about it, visual materials have historically been central to medical practice, medical education, diagnostics. Now think about anatomical atlases that have been around you know, since the Renaissance or cl clinical photography. Mm -hmm. uh, in the late 19th century, I'm thinking of Jean-Martin Charcot and his uh, hysteric patients that he would use photograph as a clinical tool, but also, you know, x-ray, diagnostic imaging, or simply, you know, more recently, data visualization in the medical field and public health. Uh, so these are the primary sources. Then in terms of framing or, you know, critical thinkers or secondary sources, we read Susan Sontag on illness as metaphor. We read uh, Arthur Kleiman on the distinction between illness and disease. We read Elaine Scarry and her work on pain and whether pain is communicable or not. Uh, and then we read Charles Rosenberg and Frank Snowden, so two historians of medicine on epidemics. So these are staples, uh, yeah, throughout. These have been staples throughout the iterations of the course. Very nice. Well, I've, I've read a couple of those, but my reading list just got a lot longer. So uh, I'm happy to suggest more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, are there, so you mentioned, I, I was kind of interested to know if there are pre-health or pre-medical students um, in your classes, which you just answered for me. Um, do you find that there's maybe things that, that those students, those pre-health students are looking to get out of the class or they get out of the class um, that might be different from, you know, some of the other students in the class. And I ask this mostly because a lot of our viewership that listens to uh, the Medicus podcast oftentimes are pre-medical students. And so they're wow. uh, probably interested in, in some of the same things that those students in your classes are interested in. Well, yes, uh, I would say that an overwhelming majority of the students who take my literature and medicine course are pre-med or pre-health and with some of them we keep a correspondence well after they graduate or and go on to med school so they keep going back apparently to the questions and you know, the insights that uh, the literary text and our class discussions had generated and they keep asking for more readings uh, even as busy med school students and I'm always delighted of course to offer suggestions sometimes they invite me to give talks at their med school so there is very interesting um, exchange uh, I learn from them uh, they they get hooked with literature and they keep yeah. reading uh, so that that's really that's really good and my course in general has a self-serving purpose. I always think that when I fall ill, I want to be treated by a doctor who can read poetry and can appreciate literature and storytelling. Right. So one of those students might be, uh, maybe you know, it'll come full circle at some point. Yeah. 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 Did you, I was interested too, did you ever consider entering uh, the, you know, clinical medicine yourself, a medical career as a you know, doctor, nurse? some sort of practitioner? Mm, uh, no, because I'm squeamish. I'm afraid of needles and all that stuff. <laughs> I was more into, I was more into, you know, math, theoretical physics, like more abstract, more brainy, if you wish, than uh, hands-on. Yeah. 
And I'm more interested in parsing medicine from a humanistic perspective, I would say. <laughs> yeah, I guess you said your mother was an OR nurse, right? Yes. There are probably too many, uh, too many horror stories from, <laughs> from her. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe I that's why. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we've, I, we've already kind of touched on this next question a little bit, um, or quite a bit, really. Um, but I, you know, I was interested in uh, what I'm doing and my classmates are trying to do now is, is learn medicine so we can treat patients. And um, it's obviously a very large field. There's a lot to learn. And you kind of, we can kind of talk about it sometimes as like a new language, that there's the language of the human body. Um, you have to learn about not just new terms and what they actually mean, but then how to actually apply those terms into which medicines to give, which procedures this patient needs, um, what diagnosis they're sort of leading you to with their story. And so you, you know, you are a language expert yourself. Um, what parallels do you see between sort of like comparative literature and world languages and then maybe the language of medicine and, and how to go about learning that language as a student, as a medical professional? Well, I, yes, I, indeed, I see important parallels and one specifically. And, you know, if I think of uh, medicine as learning a new language, I think this goes beyond the technical lingo or, you know, the, the, those new terms that one has to memorize. Yeah. It's more about the language of the body. So the language, um, you know, the physician is trained in a way in reading the symptoms as signs, as signifiers, and conferring meaning upon them by connecting them and formulating a diagnosis. So the physician is a reader of sign, an interpreter of signs of these symptoms, and at the same time, a writer, because he or she will uh, build a story uh, and explain them order all these signs and symptoms into causal temporal chains, um, attempt uh, configurations among them, and, uh, and so formulate, they will formulate a diagnosis. So that's the kind of reading and writing that I see um, in action at the, you know, the, in, in medical uh, encounters, in doctor-patient encounters. Right. I mean, I think it kind of goes hand in hand with what we talked about of, um, of like gathering a patient's story and focusing on that. And then the other stories that are the other data points that sort of gather together to contribute to that story as well. Yes, for sure. They go hand in hand. Right. So, yeah, just like in going through some of the things that you study and that you've given presentations on, um, I noticed that there seems to be some focus on end of life topics and mortality. And so I was just interested to hear what, what you have to say about the, maybe the sources you look at, um, what they have to say about end of life, mortality, those kind of topics. Hmm. Uh, in class, we talk about the good death tradition quite a bit. And, you know, that came up in the wake of the devastating black plague and people would, you know, the European society was decimated. Yeah. Many people died. So people were starting to think about a way to die appropriately. And, you know, and they came up with a few principles like being among one's kin, settling all the controversies. 
uh, you know, giving a deathbed speech, you know, these words of parting, and also being prepared. And a declension of this tradition is seen away, um, you know, well after uh, the, the Middle Ages, that, that's when it was created. So, for example, mm, you know, in the U.S. Civil War, with battlefield death, you had soldiers who were trying to recreate a surrogate of this good death um, protocol by keeping photographs of their kin in their pockets or by dictating their words of parting to their um, um, comrades and friends. And so the good death is something we look at in many of the sources we analyze. Um, we read Tolstoy's Death of Ivan Ilyich, uh, where there's no mystery. I mean, from the title, we know that the protagonist dies, so that's not the point. And actually, it starts with the funeral, so it's all clear, nothing is a mystery. But then we trace the trajectory of how he dies, so his lifetime, and then the moments, the days right before his death. And we try to parse that part and figure out what's important there. Um, and then, for example, in well, the idea of the previvors, uh, the concept of the previvors, it alone keeps the end in sight. Well, we're all mortal, but those people are, again, more prone to, to die of terrible diseases. So they keep looking at the present day of what they experience every day from this imagined or feared vantage point of the ending. Yeah. And then, you know, if you read Kalanithi's book, When Breath Becomes Air, uh, he's, you know, he was this brilliant uh, resident at Stanford uh, Medical um, School, and then he was diagnosed with, with uh, lung cancer. Right. And, and, and he decided to resort to literature and writing. Um, he was no longer interested in, in the curves and all of that. And the question is why? Why is it that he kept um, experiencing, not just seeing, but experiencing everything through a literary lens? And why was it, was he urged to write? He was typing up until three days before his death on his yeah. computer using gloves when, you know, it hurt. Uh, so this urgency of storytelling, of making sense, of wrapping up in a story, you know, of crystallizing things in a story. So storytelling is a, is a cognitive necessity and becomes uh, more so towards the ending because the end bestows meaning upon all the events that have preceded it, you know, casts new light and reorders everything. Uh, uh, so, yes, and also, you know, in Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go, which is a story of clones that are, um, made just as um, spare parts uh, for, for humans. Uh, and we see the story through the eyes of a clone. And so they are bound to donate organs until they die. And so the, the message there is that it is a meaningful life that makes for a good death. So they, you know, they go to this uh, school where they learn the arts and they make meaningful connections, they value community, they experience and enjoy and understand and appreciate music and literature. So the message there is that they don't have a good death in, you know, in the way we think about it, but in, in their story world, a meaningful life makes for, for a good death. So yes, we think about end of life and mortality quite a bit. Yeah, I've actually gotten a chance to read both of those books that you, the last two you mentioned, the When Breath Becomes Air, 
um, which I, is a very popular book in the kind of the medical community, as you can imagine. Um, yes. Very, you know, very sad and uh, very touching in many ways. Um, and then Never Let Me Go. I, I love that book as well. Um, I, I think it's interesting you, you bring up this concept of the good death. Um, one, one thing that is, uh, it's a topic we talked a little bit about in medical school in the first couple of years. Um, and then I'm seeing a little more directly this year, treating patients directly, is we have access to lots of technology, lots of medicines, all sorts of things that can prolong life help people live healthier and happier for longer periods of time. But then once they've reached a point where maybe they aren't living at their healthiest and happiest can still remain alive, um, functioning to some level of uh, some degree of ability. Um, but perhaps it's uh, sort of at times taking away from their ability to experience the good death or prolonging life beyond their ability to experience that. Is that anything you've run across in, in your studies or do you think that uh, there's any truth to that in, in what you see with uh, medical technology and advancements? Ah, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, well, yes, uh, up until a certain point in time, the moment of death was quite straightforward. You know, people mm. would check the breathing with a leaf, like if you look at those Egyptian, <laughs> you know, <laughs> sources, or, you know, the cardiopulmonary death. Yeah. But now with advanced technology, uh, there's, a, um, there's a choreography of death. You know, you have to start a procedure when you want a body not, no longer to be attached to machines, et cetera. And that's where conflicting values and, uh, and convictions and cultures um, emerge because you know each of them claims uh, agency and authorship and authority of the story and uh, I mean that that's why the medical establishment had to come up with the definition of 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 irreversible coma for example that was unthinkable just you know the beginning of the 20th century yeah. so what yeah so it's a matter of debate we have to agree upon uh, a set of procedures uh, so again it's not um, objective it's something that the society has agreed upon and people have different views on that people write a plan for <laughs> for uh, their end of life uh, if they don't agree with therapeutic um, uh, tenacity that's how they call it right. uh, so so yes it's a very delicate and 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 rich topic for sure mm -hmm. yeah um, so I wanted to give you just a sort of open-ended chance to tell us about the book that you published recently, The Medical Story Worlds. I believe it was released earlier this month. Is that correct? Yes, last week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations. So Thank yeah, you. Uh, if you could just tell us more about it, we'd love to hear. Yes. Um, well, also, before I do that, I really want to, you know, talk a bit more, if possible, about why literature is so important uh, also you know for a medical audience sure i think you know literary texts are compelling because they kind of question or undermine public scientific narr narratives that that seek to generalize about human bodies and human lives literature allows us to live other lives vicariously it invites us you know to rehearse scenarios to 
to attempt answers to questions we've not yet encountered, but we might. It prompts us to reassess our views against the background of what we're reading about. Uh, so what would I do in that same situation as a patient in remission or as a previvor, as a doctor, as a caregiver? Through literature, we can witness the inner thoughts of someone who's dying. We can see the world again through a clone's perspective. Uh, we can be privy to the insecurities, the vulnerability of a successful physician. Um, for example, in class, when we tackle neurodiversity, of course, we read Oliver Sacks and his case studies, but we also read for, in the same week, Temple Grandin's inside story of autism, probably the first inside story about autism, along with a mystery book of fiction uh, whose narrator is a fictional teenage boy on the spectrum. And so it's a first person narrative. It's called uh, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. Yeah. So every year, the students report that they gain more insights from the fictional account than from you know, Temple Grandin's nonfiction. And they sympathize more with a fictional teenage kid. So that's, you know, that's telling. And again, you know, medical knowledge is not this stream of objective notions divorced from mundane matters. It's very steeped in the culture that produces it. So it's values, beliefs, and agenda. Uh, so that's something that um, with the students, we, we, we discuss a lot. It, you know, it relies on hard sciences like chemistry, biology, physiology, but it entails a high degree of, of interpretation and also of adaptation to the actual patient where we're dealing with. As an interpretive endeavor, of course, it is not immune from implicit bias on the part of the practitioner. So these are some of the things we discuss. Now, uh, my book examines literary works, of course, that were produced in Russia at the turn of the 20th century uh, in response to these medical and public health tenets of that epoch. So their authors and the characters tend to rub against the grain of official biomedical truths by claiming their own agency in telling the story of mortality, of illness and well-being, whether it is a matter of personal or public health. And such agency, I argue, can be attained only through authorship, that is by uh, recasting these inescapable narratives produced in the field of medicine and public health on different terms. And you can do that by manipulating and reversing narrative time, by transforming endings into new beginnings, by defamiliarizing or questioning established plots, uh, by reconfiguring hierarchies of humans vis-a-vis non-humans. So each chapter analyzes a crisis of and a challenge to human agency, one posed by no less than death mm -hmm. or the prospect of death in chapters one and two, by, by a political discourse in chapter three, by non-human entities in chapter four. So in the face of these challenges, my authors, the authors I examine, so Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Viktor Shklovsky, but also Jurman, Italo Zvevo, and Mikhail Bulgakov, they complicate existing biomedical truths. They put them in perspective, uh, undermine their authority. And they do so by, again, constructing plots, mobilizing time or playing with perspective, articulating a plurality of voices and you know, exploring the sem semantic and aesthetic possibility of words. Um, so these 
stories, these voices are reaching us from more than a hundred years ago, uh, belong to a cultural tradition that is far and largely understudied in the medical humanities, but they do speak to major current debates in the field. So extending, they extend beyond the cultural horizon of the texts and the intentions of the authors. So they have addressed concerns such as the end of life, the notion of risk, Mm. Again, the time horizon and long course treatment, biopolitics, um, non-human entities in our bodies, and they contribute fresh perspectives and insights. So uh, to foreground this conceptual juxtaposition of literature and medicine, each chapter examines literary texts alongside medical concepts or procedures. Yeah. So yeah, that's how it is organized. And my intent is to examine powerful earlier iterations of, of today's most urgent questions. Right. So a lot of direct links, it sounds like, to ongoing debates that we're having in both uh, the humanities world, the medical humanities world, and just the broader uh, medical world as well. Absolutely. So the methodology is sort of bifocal. So the analysis constantly moves between you know, the medical humanities today and Russian culture at the turn of the 20th century, as well as between literary tropes and devices on the one hand and medical practice, discourse, and policies on the other. Right. Well, I hope it can you know, open up a whole new subset of people to, um, to that time, that period, and that place in, in literature. So as uh, just kind of like a final question, um, we talked about at the beginning, like you uh, are coming at medicine from a different angle than someone like me necessarily, where I, you know, I am in medical school and you study kind of the artistic and literary aspect. Um, what would be something points from your background points from your study, um, that you would like to leave as sort of final thoughts for me and my audience, which is a lot of, uh, medical students, pre-medical students and other, medical professionals, what would be important for us to, to keep in mind? I will go back to what we were talking about earlier about medicine uh, as, again, not this objective, uh, abstract uh, flux or stream mm-hmm. of notions, uh, but again, incredibly profoundly steeped in who uh, the societies who produces uh, pr- produce them the value, the moral compass, the agenda, the beliefs. Um, And also that storytelling is inescapable. Uh, You know, no matter how objective we think um, a purview, uh, a domain is, storytelling becomes this cognitive necessity to make sense of our experience of the world. Um, Again, we come up with a plot to order the scattered events, scattered phenomena uh, into causal temporal links, uh, but we order things into specific configurations. And then again, the interpretive nature of medicine. So this transforming symptoms and signs into a coherent explanation, uh, diagnosis and also prognosis that uh, entails authorship of sorts. So different, you know, different uh, practitioners would maybe tackle it differently. Um, so that's, you know, the interpretive endeavor, it's something we have to keep in mind because it's inescapable from the practitioner, the patient, the society uh, that that surrounds us. 
Yeah, thank you. I think that's uh, something I definitely hope to apply to my career. And I think that would be good for all of us to, to keep in mind. So um, thank you so much. This has been a very enlightening conversation. We really enjoyed having you on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. As always, thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, no patient-doctor relation is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment.